0: Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS.
1: And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia.
0: And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic International Studies. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. What you're about to hear is a recording of an event our team hosted at CSAS on February 15th. We were discussing the upcoming one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it meant for global politics. I was joined on stage by my co-host, Maria Snagovaya, our senior associate non-resident fellow, Michael Kimmage, and our special guest, Dara Masakot from the RAND Corporation. We had a great and wide-ranging discussion that covers the landscape of the conflict one year on, from Russia's military operations to the impact of sanctions to Russia's own internal political challenges. Please enjoy this episode and be sure to tune back in on Thursday, February 23rd, when we will be releasing a new original conversation between myself, Maria, and Michael discussing the different articles we've all been writing to understand this war and what it means for Ukraine, Russia, Europe, and the world. What I thought we would do, uh, since there's a lot to cover, is maybe break up the conversation past, present, and future. And I think we'll sort of start by maybe talking about why this war happened. Why did Putin make the decision to invade Ukraine? Uh, what was the rationale? What was he thinking? Uh, and maybe I'll start with with you, Michael, uh, to, to kick us off and then turn to Maria to comment on that as well.
2: Well, first of all, thank you, you know, Max, for the very kind introduction and to, to CSAS for hosting this uh, event. And it's wonderful to be with, uh, with Dara and Maria, Maria and to have this conversation at this particular moment in time as the sort of first-year anniversary of the war looms be, uh, before us. I think that you can divide Putin's motivations into at least two categories in trying to understand the question of why he invaded, how he did, and when he did, uh it's always worth adding as a caveat that when it comes to actual evidence about decision making in russia we're not in a good position so you know it's guesswork uh it's important guesswork uh but uh alas not not much more than that but i think that you can put the invasion in one particular context of a uh of a russia that sees the outside world uh in imperial terms uh and that has uh, a particular cultural attitude toward Ukraine that's on the one hand condescending as if the country or the state doesn't or shouldn't exist, and on the other hand embraces a part of Ukraine uh, here the category of empire is maybe not the perfect one, but it embraces a part of Ukraine uh, as Russia uh, and you know sort of is not annexing territory or taking territory in the eyes of Putin, uh, but liberating this part of Ukraine from an artificial construct i e Uh, the Ukrainian state. And uh, the radicalism of this perspective uh, is something that escaped me before the war began. I I, I knew that Putin had these tendencies, and it was sort of his rhetoric, and some of it just seemed like propaganda. Uh, And verbal extremism before the 24th of February 2022, I think I would now acknowledge that this is really a part of Russian decision-making. Obviously, it's a part of messaging and the way in which Putin has justified the war. But this imperial purview is really an aspect of his Uh, of his decision-making. And therefore, the radicalism of Putin is one of the many things that we have to contend with. I think you can bump a a second motivation of Putin's down to a somewhat more practical level. Uh, And this is the sense that dawned uh, uh, on Putin's part that he was losing Ukraine. Uh, you know, Sort of a potential loss of Ukraine in 2013, 2014, and then what was becoming the actual loss uh, of Ukraine, that Ukraine was entering into Western political legal and military structures, and that this, in the eyes of Putin, was a vehicle of uh, American influence in the region, uh, and that if this was a trajectory that would be untouched uh, for five or 10 years, this is Putin thinking perhaps in 2020, 2021, that Ukraine would be definitively lost, and that Putin would be the one who lost, uh, who lost Ukraine. Uh, and so the war in this context is not a cultural project and not exactly an imperial project but is an aspect of russian strategy so instead of letting ukraine fall into the hands of western europe and the united states we'll break it apart we'll break it into pieces we'll control what we can control uh, and we'll sort of shift the whole trajectory uh, of american policy in the region the trajectory of europe uh, in a different uh, direction i think it's gone very poorly for putin this aspect of uh, of the plan but i'll just say by way of conclusion i don't think that he's given up on on this and i don't think that he's given up on the first part of what i was trying to describe of this imperial project that he has for for the region writ large
0: M- M- maria uh, maybe the same question over to you i but one of the things that really uh you know if we if we sort of uh, go back to uh 20 january 2022 or or this moment in february 2022 you know there's a lot of discussion about putin being this kind of grand chess master, the savvy tactical decision maker or a strategist that would always kind of you know make the right decision. And there was this real debate about how whether he was a cautious decision maker, that he wouldn't do anything too extreme each of the military interventions that we saw, whether it was Syria, Ukraine in 2014, or Georgia in 2008. There was always a bit of uh, reticence in how far Russia would push. Um, and so this led to this sense that he was a cautious calculating decision maker. Do you think that that analysis was wrong, or what was what prompted, what motivated Putin to, to go forth?
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, just as Michael has said, the usual disclaimer that I'm not um, crediting myself with being able to read Putin's mind, uh, but I'll do my best. Um, definitely uh, something has changed, and I think many analysts have pointed out that this time uh, things were different, even if, of course, part of the reasons why Putin uh, failed to achieve the, his original goals in Ukraine, right? I mean, and we're talking occupation of Kiev. Uh, even if I don't subscribe to the narrative that he already completely failed, um, the one of them, um, the, the the reasons was of course that, that he badly miscalculated Ukraine, and this self delusionment has been a part and quite consistent, uh, pretty much since two thousand fourteen. Uh, we know, for example, as a matter of fact, that uh, in two thousand fourteen, after uh, this attempted insurgent, insurgent insurgencies did not work out across all of the Southeastern Ukraine, but only worked out in Donbas and Lugansk. There were some people fired from the presidential administration Responsible specifically for Ukraine and post-Soviet uh, area. That is, there seem to have been certain learning curve there going on, but apparently not enough. And frankly, as a political scientist, the degree of um, simplicity of the political system that Putin built and its complete failure—you know—to learn from the previous lessons is almost scary, but also um, frustrating for somebody who studies political systems. You always want. To to imagine complexity than there really is. Having said that, uh, the overall uh, complexity of the arguments that led to this disastrous uh, decision, I subscribe to everything that Michael has said, uh, but I also wanted to add a couple of more uh, points along those same lines. So first of all, I think the most one and most telling document that you can ever read as to what prompted Putin to invade Ukraine was his own article that appeared in summer 2021 where he essentially, um, again, if you read his language, (laughs) uh, describes how he sees the situation, right? And he de facto describes along those same lines that uh, Ukraine is lost. It's becoming not just a neutral state, but anti-Russia. Uh, and those tradi- uh, traditional quote-unquote Russian regions of Ukraine essentially are drifting away. Uh, that was exacerbated by a number of uh, domestic developments in Ukraine, Specifically Zelensky's uh, uh, essentially um, uh, attempt to eliminate Russia's influence domestically, such as sanctioning some of the pro-Russia channels and Medvedchuk in particular, um, uh, a person who is very notorious and close to Putin, uh, but so important the uh, role of Viktor Medvedchuk is that his um, alleged persecution in Ukraine was actually a matter of discussion at one of the security councils in Russia Uh, during that time, just to show you how important and how personal Putin takes that. And of course, uh, along with those, uh, like the perceived diminishing leverage over Ukraine, along with those considerations that Ukraine was becoming essentially drifting towards uh, the transatlantic alliance um, and uh, also arming and becoming stronger. And there actually I wanted to give him some credit because he was not exactly wrong. Even with this Ukraine, uh, which, is fighting really strong, courageously, but obviously lacking the necessary weapons, where I'm hoping the West will be consistently continuing to provide the aid. Even with that Ukraine, today's Russia cannot deal effectively, right? Essentially, Russia is stuck in this long-term war and it cannot win decisively. Uh, That is pretty clear. So in that sense, he was not completely uh, wrong. He understood that timing was not on his side. Russia indeed is declining, albeit some would say maybe not as fast enough. And uh, from that perspective, acting preemptively made some sense, even if, as I said, it ultimately was based on gross disillusions that unfortunately led us towards this catastrophe.
0: Great. Dara, maybe I'll turn to you uh, to talk a little bit about how you know this seems like one of the, I guess penultimate successes of the U.S. intelligence community in many ways, the the discovery of uh, Russia's war plans. Um, I remember pretty vividly in the fall. Uh, reading you know, articles that were in the press and and clearly seeing that something had shifted, uh, that the reporting had shifted, that the response from the U.S. government had shifted. Um, so it seems like while, you know, in a lot of the, the debates that were happening in think tank community and publicly uh, were, no, Putin wouldn't actually do anything as reckless as invading, you know, all of Ukraine. Uh, but that's where the U.S. got. I wonder if you could maybe talk about the the, why did the U.S. sort of, Get this right. Uh, how was and maybe talk about how the U.S. was able to uh, re- release intelligence in a very unique and innovative way.
3: All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me here um, to talk about everything as we approach the one-year mark of, of this invasion. Uh, understanding Russian war plans is like the crown jewel of achievement for U.S. intelligence, and so my hats are off to them. This is not easy to do. At the time, if you look back at the fall of 21 and and moving towards February 22, it seemed like the public emphasis was on pre-bunking or talking about, well, Russian propaganda is going to try to do this. They're going to try to create all these pretexts and they're going to try to go into Ukraine. Behind the scenes, we know now um, through reporting through um, different outlets like the New York Times or Washington Post and many others that there was a concerted effort at multiple levels of the US government, not only to speak with the Ukrainians, to speak with our allies in NATO, but also to message the Russians directly. These were done at multiple levels, whether it was um, Department of State, whether it was Biden to Putin, um, whether it was Burns to Patrushev, um, telling them multiple times in private and in public, we know about your invasion plans. Do not do this. We are going to support Ukraine. There will be consequences to you. And there's a particularly vivid example um, between um, CIA Director Burns and Patrushev. And I think it's important to put this in context. Uh, Patrushev is one of the most uber ultra hawks in Russia. Um, And to sit down across the table with the director of the CIA, who is, from his perspective, the main enemy, and have that CIA director tell him, I know about what you're doing. Don't do it. That happened in November of 2021. And they still continued for three months with their invasion plan. Um, They thought that US Western assistance would not matter, that the Ukrainians would not resist. It would only be small arms or javelins or stingers, and they could compensate for this. Um, they might have looked out at Ukraine in February when things really weren't yet on a war footing i don't think the zelensky government had fully activated until a couple weeks ahead of time then the russians may have concluded we can we can do this we we've got we've got the force we've got the numbers this will be just like crimea and there are some accounts now of junior officers saying that that's what they were told uh, we're going to bypass the towns we're going to bypass Um, all these Ukrainian forces, and it will be like Crimea in 2014. No one will meaningfully resist us. And all of those things fell apart immediately upon contact. The Ukrainian TDF forces were ready for them. Um, We know now that the Ukrainians um, were, and still are every day, incredibly resistant. Um, The Russians misread the situation. They misread what their intelligence was telling them. They misread polling. They had actually hundreds of people who were ready to be collaborators at multiple levels in in Ukraine and the Zelensky government. I think they arrested 700, nearly 700 collaborators. So they rolled up the network. Um, Really, it was uh, the story, the military story for why it departed. Um, You can't point to one thing. You can't point to, it's only the corruption within the Russian military. That doesn't explain what happened eight years ago. It doesn't explain what happened in Syria. Um, You can't, um, you know, there's the secrecy aspect of it, that they kept things from their own forces, most of their own forces, until the very last minute because they thought it would be easy. Um, There's just so many compounding errors and assumptions here about what they believed was possible for them, that it combined in a a very unique way. Um, Ran headfirst into Ukrainian resistance, it ran headfirst into a very sharp pivot about a weekend in terms of what the United States and NATO was willing to do for Ukraine in the form of sharing intelligence and sharing weapons. So this is uh, you know, it's a historical moment. The Russians have learned and adapted. They are making, um, I would call, you know, tactical or operational adjustments in how they do this. Uh, they seem to understand a little bit more of at play. But there are many issues that remain unresolved. Uh, whether it's stopping Western weapon flows or stopping Western intelligence. And over they'll never overcome um, Ukrainian will to fight. I mean, it's, it's so hardened against them at this point. There is uh, really nothing left but strategic failure in terms of making Ukraine into a compliant pro-Russian state.
0: So, you know, in, in your piece on Foreign Affairs, you, you describe it as Putin uh, played himself. And this is one of the things that I, I think you highlight well, that, you know, it's one thing to... Uh, try to mask your potential invasion plans and to um, uh, to try to deceive the enemy makes sense. But when the U.S. government is coming to you and saying we know what you're doing, here's your war plan, and it's on the cover of you know major American newspapers, and yet you don't tell your officers and your invading force that this is what the plan is, um, it, and so it seemed. That this operation was a bit more like a psyop than it was sort of a, a, a well thought out military plan. And so when we talk about some of the successes of the U.S. intelligence community um, identifying what Russia was up to, you know, many people have pointed to the the. U.S. getting it wrong about what they thought would happen once Russia invaded? And uh, maybe you could e- explain how did the war, once they decided to invade, what do you think the U.S. sort of got wrong in, in presuming Russian victory, which would be quite, w- which we assumed would happen quite quickly?
3: Well, if, if you go back in time, um, to, to that time period there was uh, there were assessments that the Russians would be able to overpower um, different routes and they would be able to reach the outskirts of Kiev by I think three days was what was being discussed at the time um, Obviously that didn't happen and there, there are reasons for that that we know now um, the the TDF really, uh, blocked a lot of forward movement until the Ukrainian military was well positioned. There were certain key battles that were very important, like the seizure of the hospital Airport. Um, the Ukrainians were ready for that, and Russia could never achieve um, a very pivotal um, occupation of that facility that they would need for other things. But but really, the the plan itself, um, you know, myself and, and colleagues looking at it. If you remember, I think it was in the Washington Post. There were multiple outlets that had all the russian you know scary red arrows going into to ukraine and and we're looking at it going well you know what is this we've seen multiple operations run by grasimov before limited in scale scope objectives Um, this was very maximalist it was done in a way that really undercut a lot of their strengths really stretched their logistics to the breaking point one thing I, I remember um, texting colleagues with within the first maybe 24, 48 hours of this, was why Why did the Army go in at the exact same time as the Air Force? That's not how it was supposed to go. Like the Air Force was supposed to go in and hit targets for days, maybe weeks, soften everything up, um, it didn't happen. So there were just a lot of, there were really top to bottom failures here. In terms of why, it was, why the assessment was different, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's some aspects about the Russian military, the problems that were known, like the structural problems, some of the cultural problems. Um, I think that it was not fully understood at the time, um, just the level of secrecy and OPSEC that they were conducting against their own forces. I mean, the, the world knew what their war plan was and put it out in the press and the Russians didn't deviate from that. They did not even change it. They just kept going because they thought that that knowledge wouldn't matter. Um, But I I do think that there was a pivot that most folks were not either asked about or not asked to consider, which was what would happen if there was battlefield intelligence being provided to the Ukrainians? What would happen if they were given M777s and HIMARS and Patriots? What would happen if they were told to relocate forces, you know, literally as missiles were flying at them? Um, I don't know if those questions were asked. Um, And and what would that have, have changed the assessment of how this would turn out?
0: It seems like one of the big X factors that they missed, and we haven't yet really talked about the Ukrainians, is that the assumption that the Ukrainians wouldn't really have this will to fight and that this would sort of, they would march in, the Ukrainians would be um, cowed by that. And uh, and we saw, as you mentioned, there, there was lots of Russian intelligence activity in Ukraine. There were potential assassination teams trying to go after Zelensky. M- Michael, um, you know, it seems to me that Zelensky's kind of uh, the moment where he was offered this this offer of uh, we can get you out, you know, by the United States and others, uh, and his line of we don't need uh, a ride, we need ammunition, sort of sent a message to the entire Ukrainian people. And sometimes a leader uh, a leader can can make a huge difference in a situation um, as fraught as that. Maybe you could talk about the Ukrainian response. Is that something that? the U.S. anticipated would occur, or were you surprised by how strong the Ukrainians have, have stood up and, and fought, and you know, especially given some of the divisions that we had seen in Ukrainian society between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers before, uh, maybe you could, could talk about Ukraine's response. So just to go back in time, and
2: maybe this is a point that matters for understanding the Russian calculus before February 24th, 2022, I think that what worked for Russia in 2014, so this would be the 22nd of February is when Yanukovych flees the country, and almost immediately the annexation of Crimea begins, and then the incursion into the Donbas is quite a bit slower. That's sort of between uh, March and, and and July of 2014. But what worked for Russia then was that there was really a, an enormous state of paralysis in Kiev. That's what happens when your, you know, president flees the country, and you have to call elections and sort of figure out things. Uh, also after months of of, of protests in the capital city. So it was a moment of internal upheaval. And I suspect, I don't know for a fact, but I suspect that Russian military planning on 2022 sort of referred back to that moment. Well, it sort of worked then, so it should work now. But it takes us to Zelensky. I mean, it's an entirely different situation. One factor that I think is very significant for the war is the nature of the election in Ukraine in 2019. So it's not a earth-shattering election. Potoshenko is replaced by uh, by Zelensky, uh, and you know, this didn't uh, garner huge amounts of international media attention at the time, but what it does in Ukraine is to build the legitimacy behind Zelensky. So he's truly a democratically elected leader. He's also elected with 70% uh, of the electorate in Ukraine, which is unusual for Ukrainian politics up until that point, point. and you cannot see a kind of north-south-east-west divide in Zelensky's uh, electorate. So he has that to work with already before the war, in terms of surprises, I mean, I think we were all to a degree surprised by the quasi churchillian characteristics of Zelensky. It's not to speak ill of Zelensky before the war, but his approval ratings were low in uh, January, February of, of 2022. I mean, this is not really germane, but it psychologically plays a role. He's a former entertainer and comedian, so you don't sort of naturally put him into that military role, but it just fit. And frankly, I don't know where that came from. It's obviously uh, enormously consequential for the war. Itself, but it's not a quality that I saw in Zelensky uh, before the before the war. A final point I would make about Ukraine is that you can invert one of the standard analytical judgments about Ukraine prior to the war. You can invert it to explain some of Ukraine's wartime successes. So, prior to 2022, there was a line of argument that Ukraine is a country that is fundamentally divided. You know, it's divided between Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. It has regional divisions. You can point to religion as a a sort of non-unifying factor in Ukraine. And this, therefore, translates into a weak country that I'm sure for Vladimir Putin made it seem especially uh, invadable. The fact of the matter is, once the war begins, the sort of decentralized nature of Ukrainian life, politics, etc., lends itself very well to civic activism. So it's not just that the soldiers on the front lines have been doing well with the war, and it's not just that Ukraine has integrated Western technology effectively, that's all true. But you also have lots of people working behind the scenes in Ukraine who are bringing food to the soldiers, who are sort of uh, undergirding the war effort. And that's a kind of civic activism, I think, that follows from Ukraine's basically decentralized political culture since 1991, really. So in a way, what we understood before to be a debit, and in practice was something of a debit until 2022, uh, turned out to be a virtue uh, at times of war. And I think Zelensky has sort of synthesized and unified that uh, very, very effectively.
0: Maria, maybe turn it over to you. And if there's anything else you want to comment on from the uh, from what the other, uh, what Michael or Dara has said, uh, please do. But I want to maybe also turn to what the view was inside of Russia, where uh, you know this war wasn't simply a shock to I think it wasn't a shock to the U.S. intelligence community, but it was a shock I think to many Europeans, to many to people inside Ukraine who didn't believe this was actually going to happen, and also to Russians uh, that weren't. There was not kind of this march to war that we have seen here in the United States in the prelude to some of our invasions. But there wasn't that sort of propaganda campaign. So maybe you could talk through the kind of Russian public's reaction and what the response has been uh, by the Kremlin uh, to uh, to its own own people.
1: Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to add one um, point that's important that plays into miscalculation uh, on Putin's side. And unfortunately, um, that's the element in the room that's probably um, not many of us are willing to assume, but that was the lack of strong enough response after Crimea annexation back in 2014 on the Western side. And that essentially, Even if there were sanctions and they did work somewhat (laughs) in the long term, uh, essentially Russia's economy stopped growing and there were all sorts of problems domestically, a lack of foreign investment, for example. But overall, when you, the West, us, right, right, we faced such gross unprecedented violation of the international law, um, everybody sort of kind of wanted to forget about quickly, punish Russia somewhat, but not make a big fuss about it because Russia was just too convenient for many, right? And of course, especially energy revenues uh, that uh, Europe relied on played a huge role in this dynamic. Therefore, was it really wrong for Putin to assume that, you know, something that would go just as smoothly, allegedly, right, as Crimean annexation went, also would not necessarily generate a strong response of the, by the international community, even if at this time the survival of a state of Ukraine uh, would be at stake. He was not completely wrong. And I think we share uh, we share some word, certain responsibility for also driving those uh, wrong assumptions. Hopefully P- now he learned.
0: Particularly if, if he had been right about his invasion assumptions and was able to take Ukraine very quickly. We would probably be in a different place in terms of sanctioning, and, and obviously the military assistance would probably be very different. So,
1: so yeah. absolutely, and Ukraine here deserves enormous credit, right, for fighting and really changing the world in the sense driving the Western international response. I think Ukraine really uh, and its role of, role of Ukrainian society and Zelensky should really not be underestimated. Uh, it, we really live in a different world. Uh, is it a better? It's hopefully it's a much better world, but much depends on the outcome of this war. Uh, also, it's really a war of autocracy against democracy and we have discussed the benefits of decentralization. There's also the downsides of having a personalistic, highly um, you know, clandestine, uh, secretive regime where hiding the information from your own soldiers actually end up leading you into trouble. And uh, like there's also this discussion, is this war for it sovereignty or is this war for democracy? I think it's both. But clearly we see that the war also shows the advantages of autocratic regime. From that, of course, to the fact that the war has become the true big shock for the Russian society. And until now, you see essentially Russians complaining about how horrible and dramatic this war has been for them personally uh, as well, even if, of course, that's still below what has been to Ukraine. Uh, So, yes, Russia uh, comes to into February 24th from the point of complete, uh, you know, lack of understanding what was going on. I was uh, in Russia back in January, uh, 2022, and I was shocked by how different that their world was from the US world. In the US, everybody kept talking about the possibility of the the imminent invasion. And I remember Russian social media discussing the specific meaning of the word imminent. You know, how imminent was it? Uh, Nobody wanted to believe it. And the common assumption was this, just you know another uh, conspiracy like by Americans they just created another Iraq for whatever purposes they pretend that something's going to be but nothing was really coming so not to be surprised uh, so therefore uh, on uh, February 24th everybody including majority of the Russian elites woke up in a state of the huge shock and of course, uh, it took them some time to develop some sort of responses, most of them psychological, because really little less that they can do uh, in the realities of the Russian regime. Uh, those re- responses eventually, after the period of you know, chaotic shock and, um, you know, really many people were completely um, uh, broken as a result of this um, uh, change in reality. But after a while, you see the elites and the society more broadly, and in the Russian case, there's really no meritocracy, so the elites fundamentally are not different from the society in some ways, They're worse than the ordinary Russians is. Um, In this, you see them developing these responses where, all right, this is the reality, and you know what, yeah, we're bad, but you know, Ukrainians also had it coming and the West also is not completely innocent and in all of that. And ultimately it was but it was Biden who is to blame because humans led Putin somehow. So all the psychological responses that are being developed on the side, all the society and the elites in place that have eventually ended up crafting this fragile, unwilling, I'd say, acquiescence around this new reality And it's very different from what you've seen back in 2014 where people really rallied around this annexation, Crimea's hours, right, the sentiment of enthusiasm and general um, hopes about Russia's future. That's not the case today. One of the most reliable indicators is not necessarily even what people tell you directly about this war in the polls, but how they um, report the sentiments, right? The sort of feelings that they report. And we see a lot of anxiety, stress, fear, uncertainty about the future Uh, which has been really characteristic since the start. Even the Kremlin's own uh, agencies on uh, telegram, social media, for example, consistently are concerned about the the sense of stress and anxiety that's been spreading around the society. Uh, So that is, I guess, the reality today. But unfortunately, uh, all of those psychological self-defense mechanisms, right, uh, always push towards even if unwilling acquiescence and acceptance rather than resistance and that is just said reality of Russia uh, that we're dealing with part of the problem is uh, the last thing I'm going to say is uh, the perception of identity as we come to realize and for me that's one thing that I've learned rational economic self-interest is not always the only driving factor and living in the United States. Um, uh, populism also actually uh, uh, acts on similar mechanisms. People really value their identity. In the Russian case, it, um the stakes of losing their identity have become really, ha- um, uh, really high. It's hard for many Russians to accept that uh, what they're doing in Ukraine is really um, uh, disastrous, uh, horrible crimes against humanity uh, and international law. So it's much easier to believe in these narratives that they're good liberators against the you know hostile war world. And um, uh, the identity, uh, this identity is built around Putin. In a lot of ways, it sort of makes this regime and Putin's personality irreplaceable for them, because there's no alternative positive identity that they can find in today's world. And that's a big problem.
0: (laughs) Michael, uh, Maria called us out a little bit as as former uh, Obama administration officials that that had some role in working on on Russia, Ukraine support. I'm curious, um, when we look to the U.S. response, to uh, to Russia's invasion, um, were there, you know, a, a lot of the same people in right now in the Biden administration were in the Obama administration. Um, were there lessons learned from uh, the response in 2014, 15, 16 uh, to Crimea and Ukraine? And, and what do you think some of those lessons lessons were?
2: Well, uh, that's, uh, you know, a very, important, uh, a very important question in terms of uh, understanding the present moment. And I think that it goes back to some of the things Dara was saying earlier in terms of one of the most, maybe the most important lesson learned for the US, which was an amalgam really of American failures from Crimea to the election meddling of 2016, which was to be highly reactive, and I think especially really of 2016, the election meddling, which of course we remember well as, as, as you know sort of being in government at that time, and the government was really wrestling, understandably, with attribution questions. You know, it's WikiLeaks. There it was sort of these layers of plausible deniability that Russia built into its operation. And that sort of hamstrung the U.S. government, in addition to the Obama administration not wanting to be overly political and sort of meddling. So they they, they were on their back heels, uh, and that allowed the, uh, the operation, in some ways, to go forward and to be more effective. I don't think that that's been forgotten by any member of the... Biden administration that was uh, in government in, in 2016, so that was reversed uh, in 2021, 2022 in a very effective way. Instead of waiting for it to happen, instead of sort of being very concerned about intelligence sharing because of sources and methods, you see a very aggressive uh, posture on the U.S. government of overly, you know, overtly using uh, intelligence to throw the Russians off their game. And I think that that probably did affect. Maybe Daryl, you would know better than I the timing of the invasion that I think Putin wanted to go maybe a little bit earlier and had a date in mind and a false flag operation. And I think that the U.S. sort of bumped him off of that that trajectory, and that could have affected in some ways how poorly the initial phases of the war went. So that's, um, you know, I think immensely uh, important. I don't think that the diplomatic qualities that the Biden administration has shown are necessarily lessons learned. I think that that's what the Obama administration tried to do, is to create a big coalition with sanctions and, uh, and to use diplomacy. Maybe it didn't have as much effect as the Obama administration wanted it to have diplomacy uh, in those years. I mean, I think that you could maybe say this. I don't know if the Biden administration would agree on this point. One of the things that Obama wanted to see during that very uh, fraught phase, starting with the annexation of Crimea and then the battles of the summer of 2014, he wanted to see this be the hour of Europe. And so who's sitting at the table when Minsk diplomacy is negotiated in September 2014, and then February 2015? It's France and Germany. And so this was to be the kind of European leadership, a sign that this was no longer the 1990s. It was not Dayton. It was not uh, the Kosovo War. It was Europe taking the lead. And it's not that this isn't important at the moment. And I think that the Biden administration still wants Europe to sort of take the lead, but they've not waited for Europe to take the lead. They've been very proactive. Uh, And in some ways, the US has been more at the center of the story. Uh, than Europe has with the 2022 war. And that could be a lesson learned that's sort of uh, possible. Very final point I would make in terms of lessons learned, not to be too celebratory of the the Biden administration. You know, I think in 2014, there was not really a great sense of where the strategy was going. You know, this is where we want to be in three years. I mean, obviously, in a normative sense, the U.S. wanted Russia to get out of Crimea and to get out of eastern Ukraine. That was the desired objective. But strategically, how to get there, that was never... Uh, fully consolidated and confirmed. And I think the Biden administration is to a degree still in that bind. It's very hard for them to say where they want things to be one year from now, two years from now, three years from now. So there are still a few lingering strategic ambiguities and that does remind me a little bit of, of, of 2014, but on balance, the lessons learned are, are, are exceptionally important.
0: Yeah, I think maybe just one uh, additional point on the security assistance side where I was more focused in government. You know, we had this really inane debate over Javelin missiles and whether to provide Javelin or not. And this was both a question of escalation. Uh, and you know to be fair, it would have been escalation as we hadn't provided any, any sort of equivalent lethal system at that time. Uh, the fear was that it would be used uh, offensively against uh, Russian forces that were in Ukraine, I mean the fear, uh, and that that would prompt Russia to launch a wider scale uh, invasion. So there was that escalation concern, but there was also just a logistical concern uh, of every time we thought the Russians were gonna really pour in and there'd be a meeting of how long would it take Javelin to get to the battlefield, would be like three months. And then you would have six months later, there'd be, you know, oh my God, the Russians are gonna come back again. How long will it take to get Javelin missile there? we like three months because we didn't say yes to the decision earlier. And we hadn't fully sort of shifted our security assistance posture. And then what happens sometimes in government is you just default on a non-lethal policy that was never actually, you know, we didn't have a non-lethal policy to the previous Ukrainian government, but we did to the post-democratic one. And it just sort of defaulted into place without a lot of debate or discussion. And that sometimes happens in government.
2: If you just jump in with a very brief point, one of the things that I really regret was myself being persuaded by Angela Merkel's statement in 2014 that there's no military solution uh, to the problem, it's a huge conceptual mistake. I thought it was kind of sort of persuasive. Well, that's a way of sort of managing the crisis, and obviously, we're not going to go to war with Russia over uh, over Crimea. So it sort of seemed persuasive, but now it seems to me absurd. What Russia did in 2014 was conduct a series of acts of war, and so how could there be a non no military solution to a war? The only solution to a war. Is is in effect military, and I think that there's no conceptual confusion about that now. That's that's a step forward.
0: It's also sort of the default state Department response. I remember, in 2014, is to call for calm, to call for you know nonviolence, and for because if you don't know what to say, that's what you say. Uh, that we hope there's just peace. Uh, but but one of the things that we saw, and to transition to the present, and then um, uh, is I think what the security assistance we did provide, although it's nonlethal. You know, we've provided hundreds of millions of dollars or more than a billion in security assistance that couldn't be lethal, so couldn't really be the expensive stuff, but was oftentimes focused on uh, things like radios and other things that were kind of dismissed at the time, but actually provide uh, a degree, uh, enable the Ukrainian forces to maybe fight better together. But then what we saw with this war, Darda, maybe to transition to... Uh, the present is U.S. provide just massive quantities. I mean, un, uh, uh, jaw-dropping amounts. Doing things that I had never seen uh, the U.S. do on the security assistance side. Providing, I think, in this year more than 25 billion in security assistance. To put that in context, Israel gets, I think, around 3.5 billion a year and have been the largest recipients. So, just a huge influx of, of military assistance. Maybe you could talk about how critical that's been and and maybe bring us closer to the present in terms of how did the war sort of pan out? Uh, you know, after the first phase of, of Russia's invasion started to go awry, where 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 did they go from there and, and how, how did we get to where we are right now?
3: Well, I think the Russians at, at war start assumed that, one, that there wouldn't be meaningful resistance. But if there was, um, Ukraine's organic supplies would probably last them into the spring. And if you listen to Ukrainian officers speak um, to the press and other, um, other reports out there, they also have a similar point of view. If you listen to them speak about that time period of early summer 22 um, before um, a lot of the heavy U.S. systems, heavy NATO systems started arriving, there was real concern. Like, we're reaching the bottom of our own you know, artillery stockpiles. We're taking a lot of losses. I think the really decisive point was probably... Um, in, in May, June, when you started getting you know the, the signals and the deliveries of artillery and everything else that came after that. Um, the Russians, I do not think were anticipating that. I, I don't think they were anticipating that there would be this type of targeting support. By this time, the Russians had figured out their electronic warfare. They didn't have time to you know, de-conflict that. There was a lot of fratricide, so they were jamming themselves as they were jamming the Ukrainians. They largely, uh, they largely fixed a lot of those issues by the summertime, which is why you started seeing Ukrainian drones, Ukrainian reconnaissance becoming slightly less effective. Well, who stepped in and filled the void? You know, the, the answer has is, is been there all along. Um, so, you know, the Russians, I, I don't think, were anticipating that they would be facing this sort of super-empowered Ukraine um, organically from their own courage um, and then supported by, by the Western coalition. So how have they adjusted to that? There's some things they can fix, and again, there's some things they can't. So what they've done is they've had to consolidate first from Kyiv, um, then the Kharkiv um, area collapsed on itself in the late summertime. They withdrew from the west bank of Kherson. It was a military untenable position. The Ukrainians were closing in on them. They had a river behind them. Um, They had to withdraw, and they did, um, largely without losing uh, very many um, of their airborne, some of their um, more elite forces who are now fighting um, on the line again um, near Krimina and other areas. So in the fall time, you saw the Russians understand their position a little bit, understand we've we've lost um, an incredible amount of people. Our soft attempts at mobilization through trying to scrape the bottom of different pools of of people in Russia wasn't yielding results that they needed. And so they took a a step they didn't want to do, which was mobilization. I think that they attempted the political annexation before they had the theater set. I think they thought that if they annex four Ukrainian oblasts and declare them as Russia, then they can threaten. Nuclear weapons and everybody would freeze in place. Maybe they were themselves going back to the Crimea example because no one really militarily contested that. And Ukrainians had many struggles and could not. They were different uh, military at that time. Um, But the international community didn't really contest it and they didn't accept it. No one has officially, but de facto they did. So in the fall, you saw the Russians move into this defensive position. They started um, making a series of positions. They've dug um, trenches everywhere. They're trying to set, set conditions that would make very difficult for a Ukrainian counteroffensive, whether it's mines or other kind of traps that they lay for them. And you know, looking at it at that time, you're thinking, you know, I, at least I was thinking, okay, well, they, they seem to understand their position. They're gonna sit here for six months, take a defensive stance, tell the mobilized to come in, um, get them trained up and, and move forward in the summertime. Um, But then to get to the the current present, they changed their leadership team again. They changed it in January and they put Grasimov back in charge. Um, Grasimov uh, presumably was uh, the the military's architect for their invasion plan, which didn't go well. Uh, Understatement. And they put him back in charge. And you have to ask yourself why. You you, You know, was it a personality conflict or was it really a rejection of the approach? of um, sitting on the defensive is not really something that's acceptable for Putin. He has ordered a mobilization of 300,000 people. He didn't do that just to have them sit in trenches. Um, I suspect, based on what they've said and and what they're trying to do today, they're trying to reach the boundaries of Donetsk and Luhansk and have all four um, Ukrainian Eastern oblasts. I don't know if there's a timeline involved. Um, I, I think there probably is still um, an unchanged maximalist objective for Ukraine, they just, they lack the ability to execute that. A question mark for me is what are they doing um, in, behind in Russia? There, there's some reports today that air power is moving around the border, there's satellite imagery of them creating um, you know, tent camps where they can house thousands of mobilized the border. They are moving equipment out of long-term storage in Siberia. They have been doing that all along, but they're doing it right now. So there's something afoot. Um, I, I think we should be really distinct here about intent. The intent is present. Um, the capability to execute this is not. Um, that being said, um, if you look at how they're, they're fighting this right now um, in Luhansk, and Donetsk, uh, there's a lot of brute force tactics going on, a lot of human waves. 24 um, seven artillery. There's some out- air power being committed to Bakhmut but not in other areas because it's very costly for the aircraft. Again, leading infantry support with no air coverage because your planes are precious, right? But your people, you have millions. And it's, it, I'm in a very deep cynical place about this so I wanna, I wanna preface that. Um, but that's where they are. You know, whatever it takes to, to get to this objective and I think that's why they put Grasimov back in charge because he will just comply.
0: Maria, maybe to to turn over to you, Dara mentioned the the mobilization that that Putin announced in in September after uh, the Ukrainians had really gone on the offensive um, and and taken a lot of territory back, taking back, uh, or on the verge of taking back Kherson, but taking back territory in the north. Um, Mobilizing, i.e. pulling men who had served uh, as conscripts once when they were 18, 19 in the Russian military, but now... And we're in the twenties and thirties and forties and sometimes fifties and had families, uh, and have families or are breadwinners or work and have important jobs and pulling those people off the streets and sending them to war strikes me as uh, a, a really risky thing to do for for the Kremlin politically uh, internally. Um, It seems thus far that they've kind of weathered any outrage. Um, How has sort of the Russian public opinion reacted to mobilization, the high casualties that we've seen, uh, more than 100,000 casualties um, killed and wounded? What's, has, mobilization strikes me, I mean, just thinking back to our own Vietnam experience when we had the draft and how uh, culturally and politically divisive that was. What, has there been any reaction in Russia and how has Russian public opinion reacted?
1: Yeah. So when we actually, I'm going to start slightly from far. When we discuss the impact of sanctions, uh, waiting for them to, you know, c- crash uh, the ratings of the regime, it's important to keep in mind that in the last year, the one biggest event that really uh, crushed Putin's approvals was of his own doing: uh, full mobilization. Uh, it's by far the largest uh, event, the event that has driven the largest decline in approval for uh, Putin. And as usually is the case in Russia, be- in, because Putin is in this way, the symbol of this regime, right? It also drew down all of these ratings of the social moods. Uh, the perception of the country's direction, all other authorities' ratings, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, we have seen a very similar correlation uh, during the Crimea period uh, going in the opposite direction. So from that perspective, yes, the effect of mobilization was very pronounced. Uh, it's, it's the first event throughout the last year that made Russians realize that the war really concerns them personally. Because uh, like for most Russians, even now, even in the post-mobilization period, right, this special military operation that they insist on calling it often is something that happens somewhere that does not concern them personally. And the third, the Kremlin is dealing with it. They're big adult people. They know how to manage that. I'm just a small, ordinary person. I, don't, I know nothing. That's the general attitude. Comes mobilization, hey, they come to realize that they actually concerns them personally. And that's a big deal. Uh, having said that, uh, there's also a huge inertia in the Russian society and the Russian system more broadly, and the resilience uh, that we sort of Come to learn, and yet again, it's been learned before us by previous generations of uh, Western policymakers. The resilience of this system is remarkable. Uh, partly, it's uh, uh, the internal desire of the people just, you know, continue as usual, and that's something even my uh, pollster, sociologist friends in Russia, confirm. Like people insist on continue living their life as normal as if. And that's one of the reasons after, that, after the mobilization happened, you actually saw the ratings for the authorities and everything else bouncing back uh, real fast. And right now they're pretty much back to normal. In fact, if you look at the polls in Russia today, with all the necessary reservations, that it's an autocratic regime, polls are not very reliable, but at least the dynamic we can rely on. Fairly um, assuming, assuming the bias is essentially More or less constant in the polls. You see the remarkable results. Uh, Russians are very optimistic about the future. They're hopeful this uh, war or special military operation is not going to last. Things are going to go back to normal, and eventually they'll be friends with the West as before. After all, this has happened already after 2014. This is really like an alter universe, frankly, if you look at the polls. Uh, and also something for us to keep in mind, right? There's a very insistent inertia there uh, that wants to continue as if. Having said that, can they really, right? That's what they want, but can they continue as usual? Um, most likely the answer is no. Right, the design of sanctions is completely unprecedented. It's gonna strangle Russian economy in the long term. The effect of the energy embargo and the oil price cap are already quite visible. Um, Putin himself tried, by the way, he understood that mobilization may be problematic. Right? We saw that was highly unpopular among Russians even before it was announced. And that's one of the reasons why I would argue the Russian um, decision makers, right? they try to delay mobilization to the extent Possible and only when they realize they can no longer hold on to the territories that they occupied, that they had to announce it, right? Um, However, now uh, it seems that, uh, again, the Kremlin also sort of getting into this mode, that mobilization will continue. And that means that uh, as long as the war continues for a while, and that's probably gonna be the case, uh, the mobilization will be there. And Russia is facing uh, very much a repetition of its own history. Um, uh, late Soviet Union and Afghanistan situation where again, this consistent drain of the society imposed by the war will probably continue for a while and so will the stagnation and general like feeling of hopelessness and lack of direction that was so typical of the late Soviet Union. Of course, it's a market economy, it will adjust unlike the Soviet Union uh, economy, but nonetheless, things are gonna be pretty bad. Under circumstances like that, how long is the Russian society willing going to be able to take this? Our um, analysis based on comparat- comparative experiences of Iran and South Africa suggests that eventually this is bound to lead to some sort of social pros- uh, protests. Uh, just because people realize that these things are not going in the right direction, And historically, uh, economic decline in Russia is linked uh, to social protests. For example, uh, the 2012 welfare protest was. Uh, in part a result of the 2008 financial crisis with a delay. And in 2018, after a very unpopular retirement age increase, you also saw um, actually social protests spreading around the country. Uh, The Kremlin realizes that if you look at the budget uh, approved for 2023, that already, by the way, has been run with deficit in January, but that's a separate story, uh, probably because of the energy uh, sanctions. Uh, So if you look at that budget, you'll see that the social spending has been on the rise uh, by the Kremlin to, and targeting the specific groups. The target the the classic. Putin supporter. We're talking about retirement age people. We're talking about people, low-income people with many, uh, multiple children, for example. So this dynamic is clearly there. We see that the Kremlin understands the problem. Most likely, the problem is unsolvable in the long term, but much, of course, will depend on the resilience of the West and the willingness to continue the sanctions imposed on Russia.
0: Right, I think, thank you for bringing up sanctions, because that was another thing that when we went into this war uh, unprecedented sanctions. The hope uh, was that this would be sanctions would prove as some silver bullet would sort of tank the Russian economy, end the war. But um, I, I like to say, as we've seen, uh, banks don't stop tanks, and and the sanctions have clearly had an imp- a, a really negative impact on the Russian economy. But Russia's economy has, in some ways, proved more resilient. The Russian central bank responded quite effectively. But so your prognosis, maybe turning. Uh, forward, is that through 2023, Russia faces a real economic problem, that the energy sanctions that are coming into place, the uh, continual degradation of their economy, they, they've had an initial injection of spending in, in 2022, uh, which has stimulated their economy spending on wartime industries. And uh, But that's going to be difficult to sustain.
1: Yeah, it's going to be difficult, most likely. Of course, unfortunate problem with sanctions is that they, work, they tend to work at first and then Russia typically finds a way around, or not necessarily Russia, Iran. So they sort of um, fill in the holes, the most, the biggest holes, right? Although not entirely. So Russia's energy revenue revenues will be down, right? But by how much will they be down in the long term? That's the biggest question right now. Uh, Today, Bloomberg came out with an article saying that Russian tankers, they they take forever, much longer now to make it to Asian markets because they essentially cut off of the European markets. So that's one of the factors. Uh, There's also the uh, price cap that there will be others. But again, there's so many factors that uh, sort of play into that situation. One thing we understand for sure, energy is Putin's regime Achilles heel. This is where it really hurts, and one reason why big financial macroeconomic sanctions failed to deliver as much as we hoped back in 2022 was the unprecedented energy revenues that fully compensated for the sanction, the effect of the financial macroeconomic sanctions. And here, that's uh, one thing that we need to understand, and I think we're pretty clear about it. Energy is where it hurts, and this is where the major blow should be delivered. Uh, I want to say credit to the European Union that's been able. Frankly, really, really quickly to introduce completely unprecedented sanctions. So let's hope that continues.
0: Yeah, I think one of the, one of the lessons, perhaps, of twenty fourteen is that you know you can put sanctions in place, but it's actually the main maintenance of sanctions, which is a huge bureaucratic uh, lift, huge intelligence lift, to identify how uh, how how Russia getting around sanctions, how they're being able to import uh, various products that are critical to maintain their their defense industries and and maintain their economy. So. Yeah, that's one of the I think the X factors when we look forward is the bureaucratic energy and intention and priority given to to maintaining sanctions. Let me sort of now pivot to the kind of big question that everyone's asking: How do where where is this war going? How does it end? Uh, let's sort of turn to the the crystal ball. To you know, we'll bring it out. We can look into it and see um, wh- how do we think things are going to play out o- over the next year. Um, uh, you know. It, impossible to know, but Dara, maybe I'll I'll start with you on, on the military side, on how you see things. Uh, I mean, playing out in the next week, month. Uh, I'll sort of leave it open to you. And what are the, what are the sort of things that you're looking for?
3: Well, to to quote Mike Kaufman, who's not here, if I could channel him, he would say, it's contingent. So um, copyright, Michael Kaufman. Um, So there's a lot of things that can happen, and there's a lot swirling around right now. So instead of making predictions on the most likely course of action, maybe I can lay out some signposts of things that that may happen. Um, I think, again, I I look at the Russian side uh, mostly, and it's important to keep in mind Um, The Ukrainians are experiencing shortages of ammunition. um, If that's going to happen for them, it needs to happen pretty soon, um, from my perspective, um, delivering it to the front line Uh, for Russia. If they were um, trying to take a more limited approach and try to um, reach the boundaries of Donetsk and Luhansk and essentially stop there so that Putin can claim that he has all 100% of these annexed Russian lands, uh, that, that probably is possible from forces they have um, behind the line in country um, and maybe waiting to come in along the border. I, I don't think it will look competent. Um, I think that it will be an exceptionally high rate of loss just based on the different ingredients that they need for success are, are no longer present. You have to understand that they've lost most of their trained personnel, either through um, being killed, casualties, or who resigned when they had the ability to do so um, prior to June 22. They've been stop lost in place and are fighting basically continuously. This is not how you have a combat-effective soldier. Uh, there is the un- unanswered question of how will they use the Air Force I don't know if my mic is going up No. okay um, they've been very conservative with their air force partially because they have technical solutions uh, for it The ukrainian air defenses still work and still craft when they commit them um, there is a larger question of um, whether we're seeing right now is the phase one of the and there's going to be some sort of rolling follow-on forces where the Russians commit battalion tactical groups over and over and over again through the the summertime. Um, To answer that question, you would have to look out for um, where from deep reserves out in Siberia. Is it moving to the front line? Is it congregating again? Um, Is it being sent through repair facilities? Is it going to um, tank factories to try to...
0: We're going
3: to pause you. For sure, am I getting OK, only... sorry about that. Is, this one's good? OK, um, sorry about that. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's a few different ways that this can go. I still remain concerned that there's a discrepancy between what the Kremlin thinks it has in terms of a military that's left versus the reality on the ground. And I often wonder, you know, does anyone in Russia see what we see? Um, I mean, Facebook's cut off, Twitter's cut off, YouTube, I think, just got uh, frozen this week, I'm not sure, but there's just such a different information space um, from what they see and from what I can see, which makes it, you know, very difficult for, I think, us as Westerners to understand how there can continuously be so much apathy in Russian society um, for how these mobilized are being treated. Um, they are just cannon fodder, and they actually um, they make pleas to governors, and they, they know that they are that. They know that they're cannon fodder. They describe themselves as such. Um, so, you know, they do have, in terms of raw numbers, they could run another wave of mobilization um, incrementally to try to keep the peace at home, or they could announced another large wave. They haven't reached the bottom of their demographics by any, by any stretch. They could continuously do this at cost. And that's the calculation. You know, how, how much can I get away with before I start to bring people to the streets? They're very attuned to that. Um, so in, in terms of what happens, what I'm, what I'm thinking um, might happen is we're seeing this push right now. I think it will continue along these limited areas um, the, again, the big question for me is what is phase two? Is there a phase two? Are they going to try to bring in additional armor with people who are not well-trained with equipment that is barely serviceable, old equipment, like BMP-1s, um, for anybody who's familiar with that system, these are things they used in Afghanistan. Um, so it's, it's um, again, a mismatch between we're, we're back again, like we were a year ago, between the Kremlin wanting more than the military can actually deliver. And I think that's dangerous.
0: Right. It, it had sort of seemed that the Kremlin had had sort of smartened up, was surervegan sort of that they were consolidating, really focused on maintaining what they had, um, and and kind of content with a, a, essentially a frozen conflict that just sort of continues uh, endlessly and deprives Ukraine of potential potentially its European future and it prevents reconstruction. But now it looks like, again, they're they're going on a, a hapless or maybe not hapless, we'll see, uh, offensive, that we'll, we'll see how that progresses. Yeah. Michael, um, maybe to turn it over to you in terms of um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you think how you think things will sort of play out, or what are the things that you're looking for? What do you think Russia's current objectives are? I mean, it can't be to sort of reclaim Kyiv and, and to topple this government. Regime change has to sort of be off the table. So, if you're in the Kremlin, what are your kind of war aims, and then um, and and what would what would they be content with um, uh, in the end?
2: Well, to to, to burnish my crystal ball uh, and. Maybe to disagree slightly with the framing that Michael Kaufman, with his love of contingency, might give uh, to the war, you can give a counterframing to the war, which is one that is rather than contingent, is, is structural. And I suspect it will be a long war. I mean, it sort of is already, and in long wars, political economy plays a huge role. We could go back to the American Civil War. where the North winds, not because they were had better generals, I don't think that they did, and so sort of their military performance left quite a bit to be desired but the political economy of the North was was unbeatable uh, and, uh, and was decisive for the war. In the First World War, it's not that the Germans exactly get beaten on the battlefields of that terrible war, but they do implode internally, which had a lot to do with the blockade and, and, and factors related to political economy. And I think in the Second World War, you would also say the U.S. ability and also the Soviet ability to manufacture tanks and aircraft and and war material was really decisive for the outcome of the war. So I think if you take a structural reading of the current war, there's no way that Russia wins. I don't see any route forward because the powers arrayed against Russia are simply too great, and they constitute the world's most, you know, sort of wealthy uh, and technologically advanced uh, nations, or at least most of the uh, of these nations. You would want to factor in South Korea and Japan that are not, you know, on the front lines of providing military assistance to Ukraine, but are a part of the sanctions regime and sort of still a part of the story. So Russia has picked a fight, it seems to me, on the basis of political economy that it's not able to win, even if it can maintain relationships with India and China and acquire chips, you know, sort of through smuggling or, you know, sort of back channels and such. I mean, I just think that gradually, the political economy will compound all of the military failures that uh, the Dara has been describing over the past uh, hour or so. Um, And so I think that that's you know, plausible and and significant, but I would introduce a wild card, I guess, back to contingency, uh, inevitably, uh, which is the Russian capacity to wreak havoc within Ukraine and also within Europe. That's the dog that hasn't barked yet in this conflict. I'm sort of waiting for it to happen, a cyber strike uh, on uh, a European country of 2016 magnitude in terms of, you know, political meddling perhaps, but even something that would hit critical infrastructure, banking system, seems entirely possible to me and could change the nature uh, of the war in some ways. There's been a trickle of news over the last week or so about Russia trying to stage a coup in Moldova. Um, seems eminently uh, believable to me. And I think that sort of stuff is you know, something that we should definitely keep in the foreground of our thinking about the war because Russia has capacities there that they haven't used so far uh, and they could well, could well start to do so. But just within Ukraine, a third of Ukraine's GDP Uh, you know, sort of lost over the course of the last year, the attacks on water supply and electricity, you know, haven't paid huge dividends for Russia and further mobilized the Ukrainian population against the Russian war for sure. Uh, But that, I think, is a kind of wild card uh, in the war. Uh, And I think that the Russian goal now, I mean, obviously they would love to take Odessa and sort of widen the uh, possessions that they have in the south of Ukraine. That seems sort of fanciful to me, and I think Kiev is just uh, off the table. But I think the goal now may be just to, concede to the West uh, a Ukraine that is as damaged as possible. And I have to say I regard that with absolute dread, uh, that sort of uh, project, because I think the Russian capacities to wreak havoc within uh, the territory of Ukraine are are, are pretty considerable. So it becomes a kind of nihilistic war in that sense. It's not really about winning, it's just about sullying what you may be uh, on the verge of losing, but it's still pretty pretty worrisome.
0: Yeah, I, 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 re- I really like how you put that, the, the sort of structural reading of the war, and if you kind of put our political economy, our collective West political economy versus Russia, there's sort of uh, no chance. But on the other hand, I think one of the big X factors and variables is the ability for us to maintain that level of support, that additional $25 billion. Are we going to be able to provide $25 billion this year, the same that we fried last year? I think there's real questions. Whether you know we're gonna, we ourselves, our industrial bases, both in the U.S. and in Europe, are going to be able to maintain the the level of supplies. There's a, a meeting at NATO uh, today or yesterday, uh, talking about uh, the needs for Ukraine and Europeans' militaries, which were not heavily invested in, are now finding the the cupboards pretty bare. So I think one key X factor, and maybe one of the lessons learned, I think from 2014, was that. Sometimes the Western attention can easily shift to other things, whether, you know, if there's a Chinese balloon in the air, suddenly we are focused on that. And I think that's one of the the key challenges. The one thing I would just maybe say, I'm taking moderator's preference here, uh, is that I think there's been constant uh, look, uh, constant fear that Europe would crack. And I think the war was so shocking to Europeans uh, and that Europe has fully pivoted to Russia is an adversary. We must do everything that we can. And we're seeing now a 10th sanctions package. So the exact opposite of sort of what we saw in 2014, where Europeans did sanctions, and they renewed them every six months, but didn't really do anything additional. And now they're constantly looking for ways to strengthen them. Um, and, and so the, the kind of bureaucratic nature of government has kind of been pointed the, if you describe it as an aircraft carrier, has been pointed in a direction uh, that I think is going to be very difficult to turn around. But that doesn't mean that attention uh, will, from political leaders, the, the need for more resources, I think all of that um, becomes a, a, a real challenge. Um, Maria, maybe turn it over to you to look in the crystal ball. Um, how do you think this this war will head? What do you think the dynamics are, perhaps internally in, in Russia uh, going forward? Whether you know, Putin can maintain, essentially, um, oh, if we're going to have this war of attrition, this kind of U.S. Civil War-style conflict that goes on and on and on, will, can they maintain that? Dara points to militarily, it looks like they can, but will there be um, enough political public uh, support for that?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna start with maybe a somewhat unpopular idea that um, something that maybe some Western policymakers don't like to acknowledge, but de facto for Putin, right? This is the war with the West, not just the war with the Ukraine. It's a proxy war with the West, right? It's been th- th- thought through Ukraine, but it's a war with the West. And I think that's how it should be dealt with and treated on. Uh, treated on our side as well. Uh, Because Putin is committed and to him, it's uh, clearly an attempt attempt to show, not just to Ukraine and neighboring states, but also other countries in the world that essentially the West can be challenged. And I agree that uh, with Michael, fundamentally that's the war that he cannot win. Uh, The proportion of, I think, total GDP of the countries on the West and Ukraine combined to Russia's is 40 to one. And this is not how you win wars. The, so the question to me is not can he win, but how, kidly, how badly can he fail, right? And this, I think this is the biggest uh, puzzle of the coming um, years. Because to me, and I said uh, before, the narratives that are already as, as I'm describing Ukraine, the victory, are um, misleading and they're dangerous because they make us relaxed and they sort of curdle a possibility of future assistance to Ukraine. While, as a matter of fact, if Putin was to contend with, I don't know, four regions, if he was to fully occupy them and um, annex them, that would still be not a full failure and can still, he can still sell it domestically uh, to the society. That actually, as I said, Russians just wants, want to accept normality, right? They want, they want things to go back to normal. So at some point, he could potentially stop and say, hey, here, here are the four regions. azov Sea is now Russia's internal sea. Hey, this is like very nineteenth-century politics of um, occupation and invasion, and uh, live happily ever after. And if anything, we have Iran as a very. Uh, unfortunate, but very good comparison uh, to Russia's possible future. A regime that's, yeah, not doing very well, but managing and also managing to inflict a lot of uh, misfortune on its neighbors and domestically as well. Uh, so that's quite a clear possibility to me. And the biggest uh, question is, is this the likely scenario or are we able to do something uh, with it? And the biggest challenge to Putin against that scenario is uh, I think internal domestic situation. This is where sanctions end up playing the largest role. I completely agree that banks don't stop tanks, but at the same time, this war, in terms of the pure money needed to fight it, is fairly cheap for Putin. Uh, He can continue for a while, um, Alexei, uh, um, of the Russian formerly from the Russian Central Bank, who often says that, hey, this is actually not expensive for Putin. The only thing that can make it more ex- expensive is internal stability. Uh, the regime that Putin built in Russia historically relied on this perception of stability, and we see how people are really in Russia desperate to hold on to this idea, even when the surrounding world is collapsing. To the extent that sanctions are able to undermine that perception and to show Russians that the war is not something they may or may not see on TV screens, but is something that concerns them personally and comes directly to their houses. I think this is where uh, the real um, problem for Putin, the real weakness of Putin's lies. And the question is to what extent sanctions will be able to really show it to ordinary Russians who are otherwise unfortunately cut off of alternative, informations, uh, alternative information available uh, to them, uh, that's the biggest question. And from my uh, perspective, in order to finally learn historical lessons, rather than com- constantly repeating this late Soviet Union dynamic, Russia needs to fail because, unfortunately, it has not been able to learn otherwise.
0: Okay. Well, I want to turn to uh, any questions from the audience. Um, uh, maybe if yes, sir, right here. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, please, please wait for the mic, and if you could uh, identify yourself. Okay,
4: uh, Keith Smith, I'm a long. I, I used to work here at this place for a long time ago. But the question uh, you mentioned, uh, Sergey Goyev. he mentioned something recently that uh, Putin might be motivated to do this uh, adventure because of not only the Z70 this year, but he's also being trailed by a, a group of uh, oncologists when he travels, cancer specialists, and he thought it was pretty. It, it was pretty clear that in fact. Putin does have some form of cancer, uh, and whether that, he thought that might be motivated him to some extent to do what he did at this time. Uh, any thoughts about that?
0: So, Maria, maybe if, uh, the health of Putin, but, but maybe also to broaden it too, of the uh, that this is such a centralized regime around him, and there have been some chatter of whether Putin could be replaced by someone else, um, uh, perhaps in the in the inner circle? Do you think this, you know, if something were to happen to Putin, is this regime just done for? Or you know, maybe you could talk to the rumors about his health.
1: So first of all, uh, one thing: uh, this rumor has been consistent uh, in the Russia, uh, Russian among Russian commentators. One prominent person to spread this is Valery Solovyev who says that consistently. Um, I have not heard uh, Sergei Guriev actually saying that. But uh, one thing that actually confirms that some, his health is somehow compromised is that in the recent uh, period, if you show Putin appearing um, on in public spaces, usually he is alone. And the latest one was uh, uh, the Russian... Um, um, uh, Qu- the christmas uh, christmas usually he would be surrounded by people now he's consistently by himself that suggests it might be something with the health heaven <clears> said you know are we going to be as lucky you know are we going to be counting on uh, you know divine justice to do the, to solve the problems for us i don't think that's a healthy um healthy way of thinking about these things plus um, the rumors about this cancer are based on the analysis of the doctors who surround putin during his trips um uh, that's some experts who looked at those you know, the number of doctors who travel with him uh, say that it's not unusual for a leader of the state to travel, like it doesn't necessarily indicate some big uh, problem. So there might be some trouble with the health, to what extent it's deadly, we don't know, there's not a lot of, I don't have more evidence uh, to say that maybe other speakers will correct me. Having said that, uh, really, this leads us to the question, what's gonna happen to Putin's regime, right? The regime was personalistic and a lot of legitimacy of the regime is built around Putin. In some ways, as Volodyn prominently said, uh, Putin is Russia. In some ways, I'd argue there's truth to that because this system and its legitimacy is highly reliant on one person only. And that's why in the current system, unfortunately, Putin appears irreplaceable. It's unlikely that the regime will end with with Putin still uh, being alive. Now, what happens afterwards is a big question. On the one hand, we have experience of Central Asian republics where also there's like strongman leadership. Um, And there were some instances that when they would die or leave, right? Kazakhstan, for example. Uh, The experience teaches us that even when uh, these personalistic leaders leave, they, uh, the system does not necessarily radically change or democratize, right? There's not a lot of democratic regimes in post-Soviet Asian space. Uh, As a matter of fact, they just leave this void, the vacuum, that is over time occupied by another strong man, yes, also charismatic and the savior of the nation and you know the, the future and the only hope. Uh, Venezuela, take for example, right? Chavez is gone, Maduro is still there. Um, However, uh, so Russia's future unfortunately still looks quite uh, personalistic and centralized to me. Having said that, historically looking at uh, Russia's uh, trajectory over the several last hundred centuries, we see that after a catastrophic defeat uh, of a previous ruler or when the country finds itself in some sort of really bad place and the leader is gone, The next leader usually does not double down on those mistakes, but tries to correct the way a little bit. Usually it's followed by some sort of reset. After Nicholas I and Crimean War in the 19th century, there was Alexander II, the liberator, one of the actually the best Russian... One, my, my favorite Russian are. <laughs> and um, uh, after, you know, after Stalin, there was Khrushchev. Early years, there was an attempted uh, reset with the West. He even traveled to the West. Eventually, it does not really lead to anything good, but at least there was an attempt. And uh, the next ruler will not have so many stakes in this war, really, because the war with Ukraine, U- like Putin clearly has something personal against Ukraine, and this is really important to him, as Darrow has emphasized, right? It's re- the intent is very much there. Uh, it may not be very much there if the new ruler comes to power under conditions of the economic strain, the society that's unhappy and potentially destabilized. So, from my perspective, I would not necessarily expect the you know the beautiful Russia of the future, the meme by the Russian opposition, to come immediately after Putin is gone. But I would expect an attempted at reset and an effort to relaunch relationship with the West. This is where I believe we need to learn from past mistakes and attach serious strings to any possibility of reset, reset of sanctions. It's very clear that Russia, unfortunately, in its current state, represents really serious challenge and threat to the international order. And. Even without Putin, unfortunately, a lot of systemic conditions will still be there, especially if the wrong leader again uh, comes on top of Russia's power. So that should be rethought, and Russia's place in the international system should be rethought if such opportunity ever emerges. Let's go
0: here.
2: Whatever we do, Germany shouldn't send a uh, a political figure in a sealed train to Saint Petersburg. Yes, <laughs> to correct well, Russia's to correct Russia's political. I problem. mean, that
0: is that is a good analogy also with World War One. It all, <laughs> not only brought down uh, the Russian czar, but also in Germany itself, you had a, a, a change a change in government. It worked both ways. But. Hi, yes. my name is Dylan
5: Miles Permakoff from the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, thank you all for for a really great uh, panel. Uh, my question is for Maria, um, Masha. I, I agreed with what you said about Russians being uh acquiescent to this war i think is the word you used as opposed to you know the strong contrast there with uh, the euphoria we saw in 2014 my question is given the the degree of the the government's crackdown on russian media uh, civil society opposition politics in the year before the invasion and in the year since um, is really at unprecedented levels which i don't think people truly appreciate you know i think some of the reporting on this is been you know covered up by what's been happening with the war has, has absorbed a lot of tension. but you know, people are being sent to jail for long prison terms for for social media posts about the war. you know, basically on a, every week now it's 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 the new norm. Um, my question is, do you think this is an indicator that the Putin regime was truly concerned about the public response to the war that it thought that if the public was able to learn, what the government's true actions in Ukraine were, and to discuss this publicly, that this would be a threat to the regime. I think it's fair to say that the, the reason they've gone to such lengths is because they're worried about what how people would react.
0: Great, thanks. Maybe we'll take one more question, sir, here. Nick, you're in the front.
4: Hi, uh, I'm Ken Myercord. Uh Isn't the biggest miscalculation the Russians made uh, in their pre-invasion planning, uh, not anticipating the extent to which the United States would go in support of Ukraine, uh, such that uh, we have uh, come to their aid uh, in an amount that is double the military budget of Russia. Uh, If we hadn't provided all that aid, the war would be over by now, right? Maybe even on Russians' terms, uh, which were their stated war aims were denazification of uh, Ukrainian society, sort of vague, but maybe just law, uh, anti-Nazi laws like Germany has. Uh, Ukraine gave up its intention to join NATO, and uh, that the Don- two Donbass republics have some sort of autonomy within Ukraine. Wouldn't that be better than what we've got now or are likely to have in the future if escalation continues?
0: Thank you. Maybe the. Maria, you could take the first question uh, on repression and concerned about um, the the. Was Putin concerned about the public response and w- from the repression that we've seen inside of Russia?
1: And I'd also be interested potentially to hear what Michael, yeah. for example, has to say. But um, excellent question, thank you, Dylan. Um, now, I think that it's important to look at the timing when this wave of oppression starts, right? And to me, again, I might be wrong. Uh, the timing is associated to mid 2020, when one of the things that happened there, along with the constitutional amendments that have been passed, and now Putin essentially can stay in power indefinitely as a result of these amendments. There's also a large protest in Belarus after which uh, navalny get poisoned uh, notice the parallel there to me honestly uh, everything that we discussed that putin really is concerned about losing ukraine belarus also plays a huge Huge role in that consideration. And to me, that was the late, the last trigger that conditioned uh, Ukraine destiny, uh, back in 2020. Right afterwards, you see really the wave of, um, you know, cleansing, I'd say, of the Russian opposition begins. And this time it's, as Dylan says, pronounced across all the groups of the social societies in the past of the Russian society. In the past, it would be targeted on specific, say, Politicians, right? Now it's against everybody, right? You, uh, lawyers, uh, journalists, uh, NGO activists, politicians, everybody, you name it. Uh, to the extent that yesterday, pro-Kremlin channel posted that when one of the go- regional governors wanted to find one organization locally to uh, fight against violence against women, they couldn't find one that wasn't a foreign agent already was uh, li- literally every single organization is on the foreign agent list and that the pro-criminal channel was set as a problem actually. So um, they actually, but also unfortunately it comes to show how small the Russian civil society is. Like you really can name all this uh, 1000 gr- well-meaning people uh, in one list. So from that perspective, um, I don't think it necessarily fear of retaliation on the side of society. It's just the general change of the regime, the decision to go you know, double down, full blown, right? The intent that emerges around there and it really uh, incorporates the elimination of the hostile elements within society. Having said that, of course, uh, they're right. Uh, they, 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 they're right to go against the independent media that would have spread the, real, the, the true information to the Russians, but it has to do more uh, with the nature of the regime. And I would argue the final and ultimate victory of the Selviki, the security service uh, elite groups within the Kremlin, the FSB, which also, as I hear, is largely responsible for this big miscalculation is this war. Essentially, this particular hawkish, very insecure wing in the Kremlin that has won and now dominates uh, in the decision-making and takes slowly, gradually takes control over the Russian society.
0: Great. Maybe Michael and Dara to to comment, to to close us out. We have just a few minutes left. All
2: right. So so two quick points. One about um, how Putin may be looking at the world. Let me just, in the spirit of being a devil's advocate, uh, you know, sort of turn your question inside out. Maybe he's not feeling great anxiety about the Russian population at the moment. Maybe he's looked at the last 12 years as a remarkable opportunity. It's, of course, hard for us to think in those terms and, 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 and to me personally, sort of repugnant to think in those terms. But But it's possible uh it's an opportunity to enhance the powers of the state which putin has been trying to do since 2000 it's an opportunity to get rid of the bad apples as he sees them if they emigrate terrific if they keep silent within russia that's also uh excellent and to elevate those people that he sees in the sense as his constituency i think maria was talking about that earlier in terms of who's targeted for government assistance, more rural communities, older communities, as we might say, using the terminology of American politics, his base, uh, so he can boost the power of his uh, base within, uh, within Russian society. And he can also militarize Russian society, which has one, been, been one of the biggest transitions over the last 12 months, but implicit in a lot of the work that Putin was doing culturally before the war, this cultivation of Victory Day and you know sort of these rituals now associated with the celebration of the anniversary of the Second World War. That long predates the war in Ukraine, but that's been sort of put into overdrive. And so he can get the kind of autocratic, militaristic society he may have been dreaming with all along uh, by waging this war. Uh, And so we may want to think about the war as an instrument uh, of Putinism within Russia. And in his eyes, difficult as this is to sort of uh, conceive, in a way, not a failure, but so far a kind of ringing success. It seems to me possible. And going back to the question about his health, his body language looks like he's in quite a good mood. Uh, in the last couple of months to me. Not at the beginning of the war, he looked puffy and nervous and truly anxious. Now I think he looks fairly uh, self-confident and maybe thinking that this aspect of the war is going well for Russia. That's very speculative and could well be wrong, but I just throw it out there as a way of sort of alternate thinking about about the situation. Final point I'll make about the U.S. and his misunderstanding of the U.S., which I think is enormous. And Putin has spent very little time in the U.S., mostly at you know, U.N. General Assembly or you know, visiting the, you know, I guess he's been to Texas and he's been to Maine and uh, to a sort of few places outside of, uh, of Washington, D.C. But he really doesn't know anything other than official Washington. He did one of the things that you really don't want to do historically. He's made one of, the, one of the sort of a historic mistake in the sense that the Japanese made in 1941 and the Germans made two weeks later after Pearl Harbor when they declared war in the U.S. What Putin has done is to mobilize the military and the moral energies of the United States. It's the worst thing that you can do as an adversary of the the United States. You sort of get the engines of morality going and the engines of military aspiration. You put those two things together, and there's probably nothing more formidable in the world than the combination of those two things. Uh, And so in that sense, Putin has kicked the hornet's nest and done something that's really an act of sort of counter-statesmanship or anti-statesmanship. And that stems not just from his misunderstanding of Ukraine, but from his misunderstanding uh, of the United States. They should have, he should have read, apparently he loves to read Russian history, he should have read more U.S. history.
3: It's hard to follow that up. Um, But to to answer the questions, I think you can see in some ways the contours of their fear that they have. Um, It is now criminalized in Russia to speak And this is for several years. It's been a process ongoing, but now it's uh, very high. Criminalized to speak about combat deaths, combat casualties. It's criminal to um, disclose locations of Russian forces. And this is, I mean, we're talking about people on cell phones looking at tanks on on rail cars. Like that will get you um, in trouble with the law. You are no longer allowed to do forecasting. You are no longer allowed to talk about or assess how the war will go but yet they are also demanding that you give them your sons, brothers, and fathers, but you're not allowed to talk about it and what's happening. So you can see the fear. Um, that being said, um, to, to agree with my, my panelists here, there's not really a direct political threat to Putin right now. I mean, he has succeeded in that Russian society remains fearful and apathetic, but also focused on their individual family member. How do I keep my son safe? How do I keep my husband safe? Um, you know, Everyone else is upset about this, but I mean, I've seen these, these conversations that women are having with their own son. Um, you know, here's how you get out of this. You know, like you can hide, you can bribe, or when you leave Ukraine, go do this, this, this. And they'll speak about, you know, there's all these women who are upset and they want to complain to the government. What good is that going to do? There's no collective bargaining. And I think that's what Putin is afraid of, but he's put things in place to prevent that from happening, to convince people that their individual voice is, is meaningless and that nothing that they could do matter. They'll just get arrested. Unfortunately, it has had some effect. The question is, how long can you keep doing this? Um, and to answer your questions about, um, you know, why did they misjudge what they were told about U.S.? Um, you know, when they, when senior officials um, sat down and told them, "Don't do this. We're going to get involved." Why did they disregard it? I, I don't know. Maybe they went back to the 2014 model where they thought it'll be sanctions, they'll complain, but our force is so strong and we'll move so rapidly, none of that will matter, um, and really just make that kind of calculation. And you know, I, I think about this too. At the time, what what would their intelligence services have been telling them in January 22? February 22. I don't know that we had a policy in place that would be what it became. Um, I think there was a huge pivot after the war started in terms of the support that we would rally around Ukraine. So I don't even know what they would have reported if they were even dialed into those kind of conversations. So it's it's really a, a historical miscalculation on Russia's part that got them into this mess in the beginning. Um, it, there's, there's limits to how they can compensate. But again, I, I don't think we should take our, our eyes off what's happening here. Uh, Putin, has, his mind is like a mind of an abuser, and it's going to keep going. And what's, what really will stop it? And we need to think about those, those answers.
2: Just, just very briefly, we don't have evidence on Putin's health and on his decision-making, but we can all read Shakespeare's King Lear. And I think that that's probably the, the best insight we can gain into Putin's mind at the moment. His of a caliber, of a low caliber, uh, comparable to, me to the way that the way King Lear makes decisions in the first half of that, uh, first half of that play. I think those are the ways that we can probably best try to understand Putin at the moment, and they're pretty, I think, instructive and powerful in some in some respects.
0: I, I want to thank you all. Maybe to end on just sort of a, a brighter, more optimistic note is that I think looking back at Ukraine one year on, uh, I think the most astonishing thing is Ukraine survived, and that a free and independent Ukraine is now. Uh, all but assured. Now, there's there's still a huge long way to go in this war. And the other thing is that I think we've always under we've underestimated Ukraine at each and every phase of this conflict, and yet they've come out stronger and, and, and on top. And so while we're it appears we're entering uh, a rather dark period, a potential Russian military offensive, we'll see if there was a Ukrainian counter-offensive. I think we can still be hopeful that the uh, uh support that has been coming from the West can continues and that uh, Ukraine will, uh, will be successful.
1: You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon.
0: Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online.
1: And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.